All right, marriage, number two, walking in relationship, the spirit-filled marriage. Um, the passage in Ephesians begins uh, before this passage. It says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Anything God commands you to do, he enables you to do. And I and many of us have made being filled with the Spirit much more difficult than it is in the Bible. In the Bible, it's not based on your worthiness. It's based on your relationship. If you are in a relationship with Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit is your birthright and it is the gift of God to you. And when you read about being filled with the Holy Spirit, you read that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That is to say, they, didn't, they don't beg, borrow, or steal. They just receive. In the Bible, when you see the power of the Holy Spirit filling people, you see, you see that he comes with a new dynamic that he brings into their life. And the Spirit is likened unto breath. So I'm going to say this. It's as easy as breathing. And I have to say this because I'm the guy that was 25 years in ministry before I entered into the simple joy of walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And because of sin in my life, because listen, every believer has struggles with sin and then we struggle with shame and guilt. I'll get back to that religion thing. And because of those things, we think we have to get rid of that to get filled with God. No, you got rid of your sin when you received Jesus and called on his name and his blood was covenantally applied to your life. And so now it is your gift to receive the fullness of him and to continuously be receiving the fullness of him. So I want you to stop struggling, straining, stressing and begin receiving, breathing, and enjoying the wonderful, beautiful gift of the Spirit-filled life because you're going to need it in your marriage. Bring it down to some shoe leather stuff. Because <laughs> you're going to, listen, do you have to ask for to get yourself to get filled with a bad spirit, like a spirit of rage or anger or a bad attitude? No, you just find that naturally. I'm going to press on this thing because I'm so stressed in the Bible, so distressed in the Bible of the business of being filled with the Spirit that I, that I have to say, if, if there was a formula, that it would be there. The formula for being filled with the Holy Spirit is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And it says, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And frankly, the Spirit of God came so powerfully into my life as a new believer that if it hadn't been for religion preventing me from enjoying what I'd already received, I would have just walked in the fullness of it for a long time. Instead, I got to seeing it as this uh, new level you have to reach. It's not a level. It's a relational gift. It's walking in the fullness of the intimacy of what God has for you. And now we can talk about marriage. Because, because marriage, above all things, is human intimacy. I'm going to read the passage in Ephesians that I read to you last week. I'm going to read it from the message this morning, straight through. And we're going to ask some questions. Um, I normally use the uh, English Standard Version. People say, well, do you have a favorite version of the Bible? I like them all. I do like some of them better than others, and I do think some of them are better than others. Uh, I use this one, uh, the message on marriage, uh, because the, the, the author, 
Eugene Peterson, attempted to, put, to uh, fill this passage with an interpretive uh, touch that guided around the uh, cultural offenses that we're all full of. But don't worry, I'll come back to the ESV and offend you perfectly. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to the wife in the way Christ does to the church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. See, that's an interpretation. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husband. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, especially on special days. Don't forget those. Exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting, Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that's how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, feeds it, pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And that is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. Oh, this is a huge mystery. And I don't pretend to understand it, understand it all, although I don't think Paul would have said that. <laughs> what, what is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself in loving her and how each wife is to honor her husband. This is the word of God. Hallelujah. All right. Let's talk about some issues of importance in, uh, in this business. Number one, what is marriage? What is marriage? And I talk about covenants and contracts. Covenants and contracts. I wish I'd understood this when I got married. I didn't, have a, I didn't have a full understanding of this. Lots of people have a contractual view of marriage. One of the reasons that I have stepped myself out of the secular realm of doing marriages for the state is because the state understands contract, not covenant. And so the state manages the contractual avenues of this problem uh, and has a compelling interest in them, but it's not covenant. It's not covenant. I, um, and people say, well, what do you mean you stepped out of it? Uh, people here know that I do, I do a Christian wedding after you've had um, a secular service to meet the standards of the culture and the community. I personally do, I do the, I do the covenant relational marriage. Um, I, I started this about five years ago when it became clear to me that the, that the, that the nation no longer understands marriage. And uh, so I stepped out. What is marriage? It's a covenant. What is a covenant? Ah, 
I'm glad you asked. A covenant is a complete surrender of yourself to another. It's the real essence of unconditional love. A covenant means I will fulfill my obligations to you no matter how you fail to fulfill them to me. A covenant means I'm all in. A, 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 a real covenant is where two people say, I'm all, we're all in. You can't possibly know what you're getting into. There's no way to know what you're getting into. Just like, I want you to know something. When you gave your life to Jesus, I'm sorry, you thought you knew what it all involved, but you didn't. You only began to understand because you saw the benefit of forgiven sins, the benefit of being washed and renewed, the benefit of what you would receive. But then as you received the benefit, you went, what, what, what? Yeah, you gave your life away. I'm always, always fascinated by this because anywhere you go, if you said, hey, listen, we're gonna do a ceremony and you're gonna give your life to the devil. People go, it's like, no, you immediately know how pervasive that would be and you recoil at it. But people say, we're gonna give your life to Jesus. And we say, I would, okay, we'll do that. Are you kidding me? No, it's not casual. It's the laying down of your life. And a marriage covenant is to a person what you've done to Christ. Yes. What's, this, is, this is what happened to, to Adam when God created him. And he, he created him. And then he said, now you're to steward everything I've made. And, and you get the, the image of this. The idea is he's fully aware of himself and his needs and he looks at the creation and he sees that everything is fully provided for everything in the culture, but he doesn't see anything from himself. And, and when God puts him to sleep and takes out of his side the, the rib and creates and fashions the woman, he looks and says, oh, that's me. She has come out of him. And now she comes and is reunited with him. They are one flesh. Covenant is family. Covenant is how families are made. When you're in a covenant with God, you're a member of the family of God. All right. One of the things that happens in the, in the family experience, and I, I, let, let me just touch this again. A contract is not a covenant because a contract means I don't trust you. I need what you have, but I don't trust you. A contract is, not, is based on limited liability. I'm going to, you know, I make a contract. I don't give myself to that person. I, I give the, the stipulations of the contract. A contract has, has some clear limits on it. And covenant is an abandonment, a complete trust, a complete surrender. And yes, I promise you, the day will you'll come when you'll wait, go, what have I done? And in the moment of going, what have I done? Then you enter into the discovery of what you must now do. And that means a renewing of the covenant. The renewing of the covenant uh, is designed inside of us to happen every day, every day. Gail, 
we, Gail and I left church last night and Gail had an errand to run and she said, run home and do this. And she gave me instructions of how to prepare the meal. I went home and did my part of preparing the meal. She came home and did her part of preparing the meal. And then we ate. One, we, the act of eating a meal with that person is the act of renewing my covenant with her. In fact, every time I eat a meal with you, I have a limited taste of the covenant. I, give a, I have a limited covenant with you when I eat a meal with you. But when I eat a meal with her, it's what I have said I would do. My life is yours. Everything I have is yours. If I eat, you eat. The only way I would not feed you is if I don't eat myself. That's covenant. By the way, this is why men who are generally less um, layered and complex in, than, than women, this is why men will um, sometimes just do the hard work of provision and they think that they've done their covenant. And you get mad at them and they say, well, I take care of you. Well, they've understood a piece of it, but not the full. But the covenant meal is a daily renewal of the covenant relationship. And this is why all the way through the Bible, when you find covenants, you find a meal. We have a, we have a um, tradition. In fact, every Western wedding uh, is, is based on covenantal actions. And I, I actually have about a 10 point outline and which could show you that, that even walking the center aisle is a traditional covenantal action. But one of the covenantal actions that's missed is the little ceremony of cutting the cake. And what we've done is we've debased the cutting of the cake. So whenever a couple come together, they cut the cake and, and then they smear it in each other's faces. And it's a funny little thing and everybody laughs. And so what I started doing was telling couples, here's, here's, what, it is, here's what it means when you cut the cake and when you share the cup. If you link your arms and share the cup, here's what it means. And I explained the covenantal actions that are relevant to our relationship with Jesus. And I just, more and more after that, when the time to cut the cake came, they disappointed the crowd by actually carefully seeing to it that you were fed the cake. Because I'm saying to you, don't worry. Don't worry, I will feed you. You're mine. And so ceremonially, we renew the, the self-surrender and self-sacrifice. And this is what Christ has done for us. And so you and I have the Lord's Supper. And you can go all the way through your Bible and you can notice time after time after time when covenants are made, there's a moment where a meal is shared. God calls the elders of Israel up on the mountain and eats with them. God calls, God comes and visits Abraham 
with angelic messengers and Abraham shares, shares the, the, the cake and the, and the cup. And then crowningly, Jesus, when he's about to say his farewell to his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot go. Because he's going to do something for them they cannot do for themselves. But he says, this is my body. And he takes the bread and he breaks it and he blesses it. And they recall the hard sermon that he preached where he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And though they were scandalized then on this night, they willingly received the bread. And without full understanding, they eat it. This is the body of Christ given for you. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. How can we eat your flesh, Jesus? And how can we drink your blood? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And on this night, they understand at least a little. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great gift and love. We receive your life, the blood of Christ shed for us. Amen. And so what is marriage? Marriage is covenant. Marriage is covenant love. What's a model for our marriage? How can we understand this marriage? Do you know why? The reason that, that Paul can write, wives submit to your husbands, is because Christ is the model for our marriage. If the model for our marriage is the way the world sees marriage, then no wonder there's a rebellion that says no submission, no obedience, no surrender. Because, because if, the, if the world is our model, and too often it has been, then what we, what we find is the external subordination of the woman and humiliation of the woman uh, in favor of a hierarchical view of marriage. But that was not Christ. And frankly... That was not the New Testament view of women. There's no view of women as being inferior. There's no view of women as being property. There's no view of women as being less than. In the Bible, the view of women was reciprocal with males, equal and complementary, and fully given to one another. Oh, I wish that I had understood more of these mysteries longer. And could, and could impart them and teach them. 
Uh, the American culture is not suited for this gift. And, and uh, probably all Western culture is, is not suited for it. And in most of the world, the relationship to, of, of um, women is, uh, is so subordinate that it's like, why would any woman want that? Um, and so it does not surprise us, and it shouldn't surprise you, that historically women have flooded to Christ. Because the historical realities are that Christ and Christianity has lifted women. We have such an oppression, we have an oppression narrative um, that, that is so filling our lives in, in every way. Um, we, this, this oppressive marriage is, is, the, is, the is, a, is the progressive critique of Christian marriage. It's not the progressive view of marriage. It's the progressive critique. And one of the things that I, I constantly heard about, and, and I heard it so much, I said, where, where did this come from? Is this thing of women as, as property? Well, women are nothing more than property. Well, you never, you didn't live at my house, did you? I mean, if women were property, it must have been a long time before I got married. Because we, we never stumbled over that little lie ever. And so I was like, no, you can't say that. It's not there. It's not, uh, if you study the history of Christian marriage, you can find some cultic expressions of how men treat women and, and it's debasing. And yes, it's to be gotten rid of. But if you look at the reality of the history of Christian marriage, no, 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 it's ennobling. And so I, I decided, you know, where's this come from, this idea? So I Googled it. Yeah, because Google is all-knowing. And, it, and it's certainly progressive enough to help me find what I don't want to find. And, and so, uh, naturally, I was led to an article about how women are viewed as property in Christianity, and naturally, it was the Huffington Post. I should have gotten a few more laughs. I, I'm going to take it that you guys are virginal to the Huffington Post and don't and don't know it and haven't read there, but naturally it was there. So, I, like this guy said, well, he said, well, women are viewed as property, and the reason we know that is because it's in the Decalogue. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's, and it talked about property, and then of course it says, and your neighbor's wife. And because some of the things are things you own and your wife is in that list, the dude is not nuanced enough to know that we weren't that dumb as to think that the woman was on the list of property, nor is it how it's worked out in history, nor is it the intention of scripture. Now, why? Uh, it's good because I, I like to see that um, hyper-literal interpretations of Scripture, whether they come from conservatives or liberals, are going are gonna to make you sick. Language is a nuanced and layered thing. One of the nuances of language that has been left out or uh, that has been critiqued by progressivism is the nuance of language that uses, uh, I'm going to say it, patriarchal imagery. I remember when it first started being critiqued. And 
and we were and we were being given the God as she stuff. I remember when it started being critiqued and the masculine pronouns were no longer able to be used inclusively because it was a, a, a modern linguistic critique. Let me tell you why the male, um, I'll just say it, the patriarchal language, let me tell you why it, it's there. It's, it's there because they understood covenant was inclusive, not debasing, not degrading, not, not ex- excluding. It was always family. And even as we are all summed up in the Lord, the family is summed up in, in the male headship and in the father. I ain't running from this anymore. I'm too old. Dude. I don't care if people hate me for it anymore. I'm just not going to run from it anymore. I'm not going to try to clean myself up for the culture. I'll explain myself to the culture, but then you can turn on your heels and go, I don't care. Exhale. Progressive model. Listen, what I'm saying to you is this stuff may have been used wrongly, but it did not, it was not given to us wrongly. Let's clean up what we have received and clean up our errors without abolishing the gift that we've been given. The covenantal gift is the inclusive, all-inclusive love of God embracing us. And it's, and it's the fatherhood of God that does not exclude the motherhood of humanity. Christ is our model for marriage. And so that if you want to know anything about the experience of, of male-female, it's in the relationship of the church to Christ. If you want to be treated in your marriage like Christ treats his church, then welcome into this. This is what this is about. Come and embrace it. Progressive models of marriage uh, have, have reached the place where they not only critique pa- patriarchy, but they critique definitions of what is marriage, definitions of gender, definitions of sex. And it has happened with alarming speed. It's like uh, if you read the Bible, the, you see that the dragon wants to devour the offspring of the woman in Revelation chapter 12. You know what he does? He vomits. You know what that vomit is? It's the, it's the spew of, of the anti-logos. What? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What does the devil do when he wants to pervert everything that comes from God? It's the spew from his mouth and it's called a spew of vomit. And the Bible says, though he comes with his, with his vomit, it says the earth swallows it up and protects the covenant people of God because God will not have his people destroyed. Okay, it's just happened. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I want the word of God. I want what God has to give for us. I want the fullness of it. I want Christians to repent of our failure of, of living up to it and I, of entering into it, of inbreathing it, of imbibing it, of eating at his table. And let's walk in the fullness of the good things of God. And we'll have a Christ-centered message, a marriage. What is the one flesh union? Well, first of all, 
It's specifically applied to the sexual union that takes place, that where God has created us so that, so that male and female have, have sexual union and out of their sexual union comes offspring or if you will, family. And yes, God made this gift. By the way, uh, for anybody who talks about women as property, read what Paul says about not only does the man submit his, or, or, or does the woman submit her body to the man, it actually says the man is to submit his to the woman. There's an egalitarian action in there of saying this is not a one-sided um, advantage being taken. It is a, a, a generous gift. And he doesn't mind saying you can't withhold yourselves from one another. And so I say to you, what happens, the signal that there's something amiss in your relationship is the distance that comes from the, sec- from the sexual union and the bond. And that's not a signal to exit the relationship. It's a signal to re-dig the wells of intimacy that rebuilds the bridge to this heart of this person that says again, how must I and how may I enter into the grace of oneness and closeness with you? I have a gift of faith. It doesn't manifest in all things, to be honest with you. Um, uh, my, my gift of faith manifests most of all is where I can, I, can, I can see where something's going. And if I can see where it's going, I can endure the difficulty to get there. There's no such thing as faith that doesn't involve um, paying a price and suffering. Read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews comes to a great crescendo in the 11th chapter with the faith chapter, but the whole book has been about the difficulty of faith and the suffering of faith and the pain of faith and then ultimately the price of faith. Well, I have a gift of it. And uh, in all candor, I got married and, and for a long time, I was inwardly disappointed because I was like, really, is this it? Because the cost analysis said at times the price is higher than the benefit. But God gave me a grace to do a couple things. One is to keep my mouth shut. That is to say, you shouldn't, honesty does not mean saying every awful thing you think. I'm only being honest. No, you're being evil. Stop it. And in fact, I'll, if I could give you one, one gift that you can bring into your marriage, and, and I tell this in, in premarital counseling, somehow the one thing I can tell you is my wife and I have never called each other ugly names, not ever even once. We have said, you're making me insane. We can say stuff like that, but I, but there's... There's no words that I've planted in her soul that she has to get over when she embraces me. Now, if you've done that, you can get healed of it. I'm just glad I didn't have to. I've messed up in other ways, but not that one. Again, because words are so powerful. I have a gift of faith, meaning I can see the end from the beginning and I can say, 
that end is mine. I saw it with being filled with Holy Spirit. I see it with God's church and how his church is to uh, manifest and be outcome in the world. I saw it in marriage. I can see it with child rearing and child raising. I can see what God has in his mind and I can keep myself fixed on God internally enough that I don't do the things that sabotage the possibilities for it to come to have an outcome. (sighs) Probably some of you are saying, you sound like you're mad. Yes, but not at you. A little bit. I'm, I'm mad at the shape of things. I'm mad at harm being done to people. I'm mad at the, at the, at the smearing of the bride of Christ. I'm, I'm mad at the desecration of the beautiful things of God. And I'm mad at not understanding the beauty of what God can give us. The one flesh union is the physical corollary of being united with Christ and the Holy Spirit. We are one flesh but we are one spirit with him. I'm one body with this body, but I'm not one flesh with you. Because the, the wall of intimacy stops with what this woman offers to me and I offer to her as we enter into the holy of holies of exclusiveness. And it, it changes in terms of its ferocity, but never in terms of its tenacity. And never in terms of its, of its beauty. So that the intimacy is not what it was the first week of your marriage, but it's better, richer, more satisfying brings more rest. One flesh union. It's the exclusive relationship that I have with my wife that I offer to no one else and she offers to no one else. About living together. Do I have time to start this? I got a little stirred up. Remember when people used to say to me, well, I don't need to be married. Marriage is just a piece of paper. And I, when somebody says that to me, I said, so that means that when she moves out, she gets to take all your pieces of paper. <laughs> no, marriage is not just a piece of paper. If marriage is a piece of paper, then this, this, is, why we, this is why we exchange Partners so freely, so loosely, so casually. No, no, no. Do, do not come and argue to me that your that your living together arrangement is the same as my marriage because it's not. You haven't made the same vows. You haven't made the same commitments. You don't have the same intent. So somebody, when you begin like a sexual relationship, a sexual union, whether you know it or not, what you're saying is you do understand this. The people who say marriage is just a piece of paper, they do understand this. They understand that they are making promises with their body, but they think that they're not making promises beyond that. No, living together is to defraud someone until you decide if they're worthy of, of the union. 
Hallelujah. She says, like, you are mad. No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> that. <laughs> Living together is not the covenant of marriage because it doesn't have the same, doesn't have the same intent. And so, listen, I'm, I'm pretty bodacious. I got to where if people would come to me who were living together, I actually would not hesitate to talk to them about the sexual union that they've already entered into and talk to them and, and ask them about it. And, and for a long, long time, I started saying, well, and I don't do as many weddings as I used to, but I would say, well, would you consider separating until you get married so that you can have a proper covenant and something that you look forward to? And it won't be like, Oh, we went out and had a party and now we went back home and it's just like always. No, how about renewing your commitment to Christ and then renewing your covenant with one another in a way that sets the thing back in the right place because living together is not marriage. And everybody who lives together ultimately finds out it was not marriage. When you, when you do get married, you find out, wait a minute, I lived with you a long time and I didn't know this. No, you didn't. It does change. And by the way, living together statistically does not improve the chances of the marriage, of the relationship lasting. In fact, it diminishes it. I, I really haven't been this nerd up in a long time. <laughs> what if I've broken the marriage union? Well, listen, you say, is it unfixable? There's nothing. There's no, there is no, there's no act of sin that Jesus cannot set you right in. No, no, no. We renew ourselves. Christianity is forgiveness. It's not condemnation. There is a condemnation. Don't you kid yourself. In fact, if there's no condemnation, then there's no forgiveness. Forgiveness is only a precious in light of the alternative. We're forgiven. We receive his love. We receive his grace. We receive his forgiveness. How do I keep my vows? I'll tell you how I've kept mine. Um, because if you live in this world today, nowadays, you see, not only is there, is there the opportunity to break your vows um, it, you know, it used to be you had to go to some great lengths to build a relationship that would break your vows. Now you just pull it out of your pocket. Or you could just wear it on your wrist. You can make intimate connections that endanger your vows. By the way, uh, porn is not an intimate connection. I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about building those secret relationships that, that end in violations of your covenant. I don't want you to be wrapped up in the porn either, but I'm talking about the intimacy that creates alienation and leads to a broken relationship. How do I keep my vows? Well, one of the ways I kept my vows is, is by telling Gail, early on when we were very young in marriage, I started to notice something. I noticed that, that there was this business of jealousy. Like we all get jealous. We see our spouse talking to somebody and we're like, what, what were y'all talking about? And what will happen is a spouse will say, well, I don't trust that person. And then you're like, 
it was completely, no, 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 no. I don't trust that person at all. I didn't do anything wrong. You don't know what I know. And so I said to Gail early on, anytime you see me in any kind of communication relationship with anyone that makes you uncomfortable, you tell me and I will stop it. He said, well, you you did that? Oh, you bet I did. Because I came to understand something. Um, Well, first of all, I like attention, don't you? We all like attention. And we all call it innocent uh, long after it stops being innocent. And so I just said, if you're uncomfortable with any communication relationship that I'm in... You have the right to say to me, I don't want you doing that. And I said, it will stop that moment. And so uh, when I became the pastor of a church, and my assignment as the pastor of the church was single adults. I don't know if you know it, but in churches, about two out of every three single adults are women. And so I was the pastor to all the single women in the church of all ages. Hallelujah. I had lots of meetings, lots of talks, lots of encounters with single women. But every time my wife sensed something that in her spirit made her uncomfortable, I dealt with it. You say, well, how often was that? (laughs) In my case, it wasn't very often. And you say, well, listen, my wife would have that. That would be the case with her every day. Then you need to get a different job. As, as for me, it didn't happen often enough that we were stressed out. Plus, you say, well, what if, what if your wife is neurotic? We're all neurotic. We just have to deal with our neurosis in the different ways. But it was a commitment I made to her, and it kept me. It kept me. She's helped me keep my vows. And I love to tell people that There are many things that, many ways that we say to somebody, I love you. But when my wife said to me that day, I'm what you need, don't you know that? That was greater than I love you by tenfold. Because I went, wait, she understands me now, the barbarian that I am. And and so, How do you keep your vows? You heal each other into keeping your vows. Yes, there's healing in the kingdom of God and there's healing in the covenant of marriage. She heals me. How do I protect my marriage? I think I just told you and I'm out of time anyway. I'm not sovereign in my marriage. I'm in a covenantal partnership that is equal sacrificial love laying down our lives and I want you to know that I've been long enough at it that it has become so easy and so natural and so restful and so fulfilling that I can't imagine myself without her now When I speak about these things, when I speak this strongly, I know I'm speaking into a world of pain. 
Pain of those who haven't found love. Pain of those who have found love and it's not been fulfilled. Pain of those who have found love and it's been broken. I know I'm speaking into a world of pain. The way to assuage another person's pain is not to um, lower the the glory of the thing that we entered into in order so that no one could get hurt. That's not how you do it. The way you ease the pain is with compassion and understanding and the grace of God. There is nothing that you have gone through that God can't be there for you. And so those of you who are struggling in your marriage, rediscover your union with Christ and rediscover your union with one another. Guess what? It's harder to be reunited when you're alienated. Of course it is. But the grace of forgiveness I, it comes to a place where um, I know that we've had hard times, but I can't seem to remember them, at least not emotionally. And the grace of Jesus is such as this. I have found that every failure that I've had in my life, once it's fully immersed in the blood of his cross and the gift of his grace, every failure becomes the frame of a picture of a story that can heal someone else. And so I do not fear to speak so boldly about things that are so painful because I serve a master who is so able and so willing and so desirous to meet you and heal you and restore you. And this is Jesus. Would you stand together? And I'm exhausted. (laughs) Glory to God. Glory to God, glory to Christ for the gift of the thing. You want, you want to bring revival? Get this revived. He has put us in this world. We are the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And it's in receiving the balm that he has to give us that we can both be healed and heal the nation. And this is Jesus.